We, as scientists, I think, have a tendency to wait for perfect information. We're not comfortable with the possibility that not doing something is a decision too. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. It has now been over a year since the pandemic really closed down Western democracies. Since we've had stay-at-home orders, since restaurants were closed down, since many shops shuttered their doors. I have spoken before on this podcast about the contrast between our expectations then and the reality of what happened over the last year. I've spoken about the fact that at the time it felt as though this would prove a real test of a global economy. It would prove the irrationality of just-in-time production mechanisms, for example, and it would prove the capability of our governments. This has not turned out to be the case. Our economic system, welfare state capitalism, a strong capitalist element with a real welfare state element, has turned out to be surprisingly resilient. Our governments have, in many ways, failed. I want to revisit that theme for my little spiel today, because I still think that we haven't grappled enough, and I haven't grappled enough, with the extent of our failure, which has only become clearer over the last months as the United States and the United Kingdom are slowly starting to move out of the pandemic. But many European countries have done such a bad job on the vaccine rollout, have failed to conclude these contracts early enough that they are still in deep lockdown with schools closed, with curfews, with just extreme restrictions on the lives of citizens. And it seems to me that this will seriously damage the prestige of democracy in two ways. First of all, people around the world will look at democracies and say, you are not capable of the forms of collective solidarity or the forms of rational state action we need in order to solve the problems faced by something like a global pandemic. But secondly, I think it should make all of us deeply skeptical about our collective ability to actually solve collective action problems going forward. It means that if we want to deal with a problem of climate change, if we want to deal with a problem like inequality, if we want to deal with a rising geopolitical competition with rising powers around the world, with rising authoritarian powers around the world in particular, we need to figure out how to reform our system. We need to become aware of the fact that we cannot rely on us succeeding in doing so, because clearly there is a level of cooperation, a level of planning, a level of solidarity that really is lacking. So I remain optimistic, as I always am, about the relevance, the urgency, the universality of democratic values. But I do think that when we assess the performance 
not just of the United States, not just of countries like Mexico and Brazil, but of countries like Germany or France as well, over the past year, it is a serious wake-up call. But I don't think I've quite internalized yet, and that certainly our political system, our media sphere has not nearly sufficiently internalized. Well, today it's my pleasure to have Lena Wan on the podcast. Lena is an emergency physician. She is a public health professor at George Washington University. She also writes columns for the Washington Post and is an analyst on CNN. We talked about everything from why it took the CDC so long to tell people to wear masks, how we ended up prioritizing people for the vaccine in the United States, why it has taken the European Union so long to order and distribute vaccines at all, and what explains the failure of so many Western democracies and the comparative success of countries like South Korea or Australia. I've been thinking a lot about COVID and the pandemic for the last 12 months. This conversation really challenged and clarified a lot of my thinking. I found it to be very, very stimulating, and I hope you will too. Lena Wen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to join you. So you have a sort of intimidating list of accomplishments, even by the standards of our guests on here. But you've really been one of the main voices talking and warning early on about the pandemic that we've lived through for the last year. You know, I'm struggling with how I think about the pandemic response. It has made me in some ways more pessimistic about the ability of our countries to deal with vast challenges and also more skeptical about the ability of public health officials to respond in a sort of rational and sensible manner. You know, as we're recording this, we're a little over a year since the pandemic really hit home into the public's conscience. What has most surprised you over the last year? Is there anything that you've changed your mind about? Or do you share my slight pessimism about how we've fared over the last year? Mm. Well, there's a lot there, and I certainly would agree that so much has gone wrong. At some point, we're going to do a postmortem, if you will, of what happened. And I actually think, I mean, it's hard because I feel like we're still in it. You know, we're not past the pandemic and looking back. And so it's hard because we're still trying to get through these, what we hope will be the last few difficult months, but even that's uncertain. And as I look back on the things that went wrong, in a way, nothing should be a surprise. Although at the time, it was really awful to go through. We know that one of the major issues, as an example, is what happens when there isn't a national coordinated strategy. And it's kind of federalism gone wrong, if you will. I served on the local level and ran a local health department here in Baltimore. And I certainly believe that people on the local level know their communities the best. And they should be empowered to do what's best for their community. But that does not mean that you should be in a situation where states are bidding each other for masks and tests that are obtained by one hospital is somehow confiscated by the federal government, that there isn't central guidance issued by the CDC and local health departments are trying to figure things out on their own. Right. And so I think the fact that there has been this lack of clarity between roles of what the federal, local do, and many people were left to fend on their own, I think has definitely been a big problem. 
I think another major issue is somehow public health has been pegged as the enemy of the economy or the enemy of school reopening. And that kind of mixed messaging continues into what's gone wrong now, I think, with the conversations around masking and now around vaccines. So let me sort of double click on each of those. I mean, I think that there's a whole bunch of explanations about the failure in the United States, which makes sense to me about what's happened in America and that pick out things that really clearly are deeply problematic. But in international context, they don't seem all that convincing. I mean, you know, you didn't mention just the general failures of the Trump administration and the very poor communication, you know, obviously from the president, as well as a lot of top level politicians. I think all of those clearly have been very, very harmful. But then when you look at Europe, where you have politicians, you know, like Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron and others who are perfectly sensible, who are perfectly decent, who certainly did not deliberately miscommunicate in similar ways, did not spread conspiracy theories to call and doubt the severity of a virus, at least not after the first few weeks, you have pretty similar outcomes. And the same is true for centralization. Germany has also had real problems with regional autonomy, but France is a very centralized country. The United Kingdom, or at least England, is very centralized. And yet they fared very, very badly too. So, you know, I've been slightly struggling with trying to explain the failure because most explanatory variables you come up with are too local to explain what ultimately is a pretty universal failure of democracies that are not either islands or that are outside of East Asia. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And actually, this is something that's been keeping me awake a lot at night. The examples that you raised and also the examples that we have right here in the U.S., you have states like Florida that by all accounts, I think a lot of us were looking at Florida earlier on thinking this is going to be the worst disaster because you've got such a high concentration of elderly individuals. You also have this state that people are coming to and partying from the very beginning that basically continue to be open, did not enforce mask mandates, and really we're not restricting people coming from all over them, having this giant melting pot of viruses and variants, and then going back to their communities. I mean, one would have thought Florida would be terrible. And then on the other hand, you have California, where a lot of mayors, the governor, they acted early. They put in place the types of, of restrictions that I think a lot of other states should have had in place. But when you compare these two, it's hard to come up with a conclusion of, well, these types of public health policies really are, at the end of the day, what would have saved lives. And that definitely picks me up. So why is that? I spent a little bit of time in Florida during the pandemic and I was just absolutely astounded at a time when there was a very high incidence of virus there, of disease there. You know, in lovely weather, you know, I was very careful and staying inside a house with a nice yard and very rarely going out. But on the occasions when I went out for lunch, you know, I would eat outside, masked, and everybody was indoors, even though the weather was lovely outside. People in the 70s and 80s, you know, you sort of peek through the windows and think, my God. But as you're saying, it is not so clear that Florida actually has had significantly higher mortality or significantly higher hospitalization compared to other U.S. states, perhaps slightly, but certainly not nearly as much as we expected. So, you know, why is it that all of those policies that I still believe to be sensible mask mandates and so on don't seem to make as much of a difference as we thought? Do you have any kind of attempt at an explanation of that? I have some hypotheses, but again, there's no way for us to prove this. I think this is one of those things that in retrospect will be very important for us to study. I think one of the things that's difficult to compare if we're really trying to do a comparison of California and Florida, 
there are different types of circumstances in California, in many parts of California that were really hard hit. As, as an example, there were a lot of people living in crowded conditions, multi-generational housing, lower income individuals who did not have the ability to, uh, to physical distance, et cetera. You also have a situation all across the country where what starts in one place doesn't stay in that place. The problems that started in Florida or in other places are spread throughout the country. So it's not just localized to one area. And by the way, I think some people have raised this issue of data in Florida, that maybe the data collection there are not actually quite so accurate. And maybe that is contributing to the lack of the total picture that we're seeing. Maybe we're not comparing apples to apples here, but apples and oranges. I mean, I think that's all possible. But I also think maybe there is something else too. And I wonder if that something else is that none of us were prepared for a public health catastrophe that's lasting this long. And when I think about public health crises, the way that we learn about crises is we think about a crisis that hits one part of the country or one region for a particular period of time, like a hurricane, right? And then you have reinforcements coming from other places, and then you recover from it. I think even though we haven't lived through this, but at least we drill for what happens if there is a national or international catastrophe. But we don't drill for what happens when that lasts for more than a year. And I actually wonder, initially we're talking about Europe, I wonder if that's what went wrong, as in we knew how to do things. If it's just about the initial containment, Europe did very well when you look at that initial surge and, and what they did. But we didn't know what to do after that. And maybe that's when the failure, even when you have strong leadership, um, clear communication, et cetera, that still ends up falling apart because they can't sustain that level of intensity for a year. Let's touch on two slightly different things here. One is why in Europe things are going so much worse now than they did in the past. And I think that speaks to a sort of broader set of institutional failures and the broader ways in which the pandemic has made me worry about the extent to which our political systems are up to the tasks that we rightly expect them to be able to play. But the other is about the extent to which you say this failure was predictable or that perhaps at the beginning, some places like Europe have done well. And I guess I'm a little bit skeptical of that, right? I mean, I wrote an article over a year ago now called Cancel Everything. I remember that you were the first to really write it in such stark terms. And I think a lot of us were jolted by that article thinking, you're right, why are we doing this piecemeal? Cancel everything. So anyway, I remember that very well. Yeah, well, thank you. But, you know, I thought at the time, but part of the, and by the way, actually, even when I wrote Cancel Everything, it didn't mean necessarily shutting down schools. It certainly didn't mean a lot of the sort of government restrictions. At the time, it was just stop doing mass events, you know, send people home from offices. I mean, this was all still things that were going on. There was viral videos going around that weekend of people at these concerts packed into tiny spaces indoors, Right. So actually, the meaning of cancel everything was more limited than it now seems in retrospect. But the idea at the time, which was the conventional wisdom, the piece of that article was just conventional wisdom, was we need to shut everything down because then we're going to put in place a test, trace, and isolate regime. We need the four weeks both to make sure that our ICUs are not going to get overloaded in the way that we did in parts of Italy at the time and parts of France, actually. But because in four weeks, we're going to be able to figure out mass testing to then trace the people who somebody who is infected may have been in contact with, and then to ensure effectively that people who have been exposed have been quarantined. And, you know, it's a year on, we still don't have a test, trace and isolate regime, and we don't have it in the United States. 
we don't really have it in any European country either. And so when you said at the very beginning of our conversation that sort of our failure perhaps was predictable, I didn't predict that. I didn't see anybody predicting that a year ago. And I find that quite disturbing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think we could have predicted that this is where we would be. I think what I meant was, in retrospect, we look back and all the things that went wrong are things that we could have predicted. As then we could have predicted that we would have a president, given what our last president was like, who would be questioning science, who would be throwing his own scientists under the bus, I mean, et cetera. And that then would have led to where we are. But I think that you raised some really interesting points about the different components of what could have been done instead. And I actually think that one of the issues is, I don't think we had clarity on what strategy was actually being used. As in, what you're saying about closing things down in order to get the public health infrastructure in place, I think that's what a lot of us thought was the reason, too. Maybe there are three camps. I think there are some people who, who said, let's close everything down in the way that Australia did, right? That we're going to get to literally zero cases of COVID. You shut everything down, then you get to zero COVID. We were never doing that. I mean, we didn't shut everything down. There was no way that we were going to get to zero COVID, but that is a strategy. I think a lot of people thought that we were doing strategy number two, which is the one that you said, which is let's get to the point of having few enough cases that when we reopen, we have the testing, the quarantining, the other types of capabilities in order to rein in this pandemic. Well, we didn't do that. We reopened too soon. We didn't re rebuild the infrastructure. So I actually think that we did number three, which is still, by the way, a worthy goal. But I just don't know that that in itself, if somebody had said that is the only thing we were aiming at at the beginning, I think we would have all been horrified. I think number three is our only goal is to make sure that we don't end up overwhelming hospitals. Basically, it's flattening the curve, which in itself, yes, it's important, but that really was the only thing that we did was we succeeded in, in most parts of the country, not having such a catastrophe that patients couldn't get medical care. In some parts of the country that happened, but in most places that didn't happen. That's literally the only thing that we were able to accomplish as a country during this pandemic is that path. Yeah, I think that's an accurate description. And I guess, A, that's depressing, but we didn't manage to do more than that. And B, the question then is sort of, are we at the optimal level of sacrifices for that limited goal, right? So if all we're doing effectively is to make sure the hospitals don't get overloaded, then perhaps the Florida policy is right, right? Then perhaps what you should in fact be doing is to keep everything as open as you can. And then, you know, if you start approaching overloading of hospitals, well, then you perhaps put more extreme restrictions in place. So perhaps that's part of that sort of Florida story, right? That like, if we had aimed for eradication of COVID, or if we had at least aimed for really making community spread of COVID a relatively rare thing, because we have a test trace and isolate regime, then it's worth really restricting the amount of social life that people can have. But if your only goal effectively is, you know, let's stop the collapse of a healthcare system, then at most times you may not need as many restrictions as we have. So we're sort of in an odd equilibrium at the moment. Exactly. And in a way, we chose the worst of both worlds because we have the economic sacrifices and the closing of schools that will result in potentially irreparable damage to so many of our children. We have that, but we still have out of control COVID. And so I think actually in looking back, many governors were actually doing the Florida experiment, if you will. They were choosing door number three. 
they basically said, we're not going to change our behavior until the point that our hospitals become overwhelmed. I mean, some places explicitly said that. North and South Dakota, I think they explicitly said the only reason we would even consider in the case of North Dakota mask mandate, I mean, they didn't quite say it exactly like this, but what I heard was the only reason we would even consider mask mandates is to prevent our hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. And once our hospitals are fine, the mask mandates are coming off. But I agree with you. If we had said that as a country from the very beginning, we could have prevented the loss of so much else and probably still would have had a similar loss of life. And I think that kind of modeling, maybe, because we can't live our own counterfactual, but I think in retrospect, it would be really interesting to see people doing modeling studies of, would we actually have had a similar loss of life if we followed that North Dakota and Florida model? That's a fascinating question. Now, the second question that sort of teed up was about Europe. Look, I think Europe is doing about as well as it has been for the last year in terms of dealing with a relatively high number of incidents of cases. The politics of this has always been quite erratic in Europe as well as in the United States. You know, the face of the policies has been much more sensible and moderate than it was in the United States. But actually, there was all kinds of political considerations and economic considerations driving a relatively erratic set of policies in Europe, too. I think the allowing people to go holiday all across Europe in the summer is probably one of the things that then drove the surge of cases in the fall and so on. But look, there's very transmissible variants. The incidence number is relatively high, but it's not spiking. You know, it's not clear to me that Europe is doing worse than it was a year ago. But the difference between Europe and the United States is that in, in America, we are now very quickly getting to a place where a sufficient number of people has been vaccinated to at least slow the spread of the disease and hopefully to reach herd immunity within some reasonable time frame. You know, Europe is terribly behind on the vaccine. And that was because of a different kind of political failure. It's because of vaccine hesitancy. It's because of real logistical issues. But most of all, it is because they, as I understand it, they delegated the purchase of these vaccines to European bureaucrats who haggled for three months about fine points of legal responsibility and to save a couple of bucks per shot. I mean, the most extreme example of penny wise, pound foolish that I've seen perhaps anywhere in public policy. So that looks like yet another form of political failure, which is different from the other forms of political failure we've already discussed. That's right. In a sense, it's another lesson of the importance of prevention. <laughs> As in, I think so often, and this is maybe this is what I was referring to very early on in our conversation when we were talking about things that could be predicted. You know, there's a saying that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. I think a lot of us in public health have lived through all these budget cuts. You know, whenever it comes time, as an example, in the city to be talking about budgets. All the other agencies could point to the things that they do that directly serve people where there is a direct outcome, as in public works, they pick up your trash, right? There is a direct outcome of what they did. Or educating students, your kid went to school, that is a direct outcome. But the work that we do in public health is preventing those things from happening. And so if we are remediating buildings for lead, we are trying to prevent the cases of lead poisoning. We can't show you the face of a child who has lead poisoning because we prevented that from happening. And so public health always ends up being the first thing on the chopping block. And I think that that is a lesson perhaps moving forward. As you were talking about vaccines in Europe, I was thinking about this, that what we're investing in really at this point, we should spare no expenses at trying to end this pandemic. And so anyone who's trying to scrimp because of vaccines, I mean, 
at this point, unfortunately, because for all the reasons that we mentioned, we can't end this pandemic in any other way. You know, we just got really lucky, I think, that we got these vaccines, because if we didn't, I don't know how this is ever going to end, but at least we have these vaccines. But the vaccines are, at this point, our only ticket out. So we should spare no expenses when it comes to purchasing and distributing vaccines. Although, you know, maybe this is a provocative point. I am very worried that in the U.S. we're not going to reach herd immunity. I am quite confident that we're not going to reach herd immunity in 2021. Because of vaccine hesitancy, or why do you think we're not going to get herd immunity? I mean, even by the numbers, if we estimate that, let's say, 80% of Americans total need to have immunity, uh, either through recovery or through vaccination, in order to reach that level of herd immunity, if we're not able to vaccinate children, I mean, probably we're going to be able to vaccinate children 12 and older by the fall. But if we only calculate those 12 and older, we probably need something like 90% of people 12 and older to be vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity if we can't count younger children. And I just don't really see a situation where we get 90% of 12 and older individuals willing to be vaccinated. And what would that world look like? I mean, presumably it means that, first of all, incidence of a disease would be concentrated among children, which by all indications we have, don't suffer by and large. And of course, there's always exceptions from serious cases of a disease. And presumably it would slow the spread of a disease quite a lot, right? So you might have outbreaks in certain communities every now and again. You might have certain pockets of places, probably some of the most privileged places like Santa Monica and some of the most deprived places like some inner city neighborhoods where you get sort of outbreaks of this, but they would then burn themselves out quite quickly. You know, obviously it is a tragedy if we have the technology to protect all of our citizens from this. And because of vaccine hesitancy, we don't get there. But from a broader public health perspective, or certainly a broader ability to open up life again perspective, Presumably, there would be a comparatively manageable problems, or do you think I'm sort of underestimating the disastrous effect this might have? You could be right, and I want to believe that you are right. But I'm an ER doc, and my mind always goes to the worst places because it's my job, right? I always have to think about what is the worst that that could happen. And there is another scenario that's not just a one in a hundred kind of scenario. I think there's a good chance that this other scenario could occur, which is, you know, we can have a conversation again in the fall and see if it happens. But I hope that by the fall, we can talk about something other than COVID, but I'll be sure to have you back on before. And, you know, if things go terribly, we talk about COVID and if it go well, we'll talk about more fun things. Excellent. But here's my concern. So my concern is that we will get to something like 60% of those eligible who are getting vaccinated. So nowhere close to 90%, let's say. I think it's already getting to 60% is going to be hard. I mean, right now, it looks like everybody, at the time that we're talking, it looks like everybody wants to get the vaccine, right? So how is it possible to only have 60%? I think a lot of people are not getting the vaccine, not because they are actually vaccine hesitant. They're not anti-vaxxers. They might have some concerns. They also, some of them can't access the vaccine, so we have to work on the access issue. But I actually think that a lot of people don't think that COVID is that serious, as in, maybe they've had it. It wasn't that bad. Or they know someone who had it. It wasn't that bad. They think that they're young. Maybe they're essential workers who have been working this whole time, haven't gotten it. They just don't think it's that bad. I think what, what's going to happen is as more people get vaccinated, as you said, the level of immunity goes up. Level of transmission goes down. People think that COVID is even less serious because they see it less in the news. They're not worried about it anymore. The uh, likelihood that we're going to get them vaccinated over the summer will decrease. I think the urgency is high now. I don't think we're going to have that same level of urgency in the summer when people can basically go back to their normal lives anyway. Then what I fear is that come the fall, 
because we don't have anywhere close to herd immunity. And now we're basically all back to normal. I worry that we're going to get a more contagious variant that's more deadly and that will evade the work of the vaccines. Now, I think that we'll be able to develop booster shots to target that variant, but I think we could have a very bad fall where we get a surge that will impact not just the children who are not vaccinated, but it's going to be the same thing all over again. Older people who are more vulnerable, I mean, we could have a basically a repeat of what we saw in 2020 this fall. Uh, well, thanks for cheering me up. That was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> that unfortunately sounds very plausible. I'll ask you a technical question, which I think is probably speculation, and feel free to not answer it if you don't know the answer. I've seen some speculation among scientists that says that there's a limited number of real estate available on the crown of this virus, and that therefore the number of mutations that it likely is able to go through uh, simply is constrained. And that the strange fact that these different variants, the so-called South African variant, the so-called British variant, the Californian variant, all actually seem to be quite similar to each other, seems to indicate that perhaps the virus only has a limited number of moves available to it. And if that were the case, then that would make the very plausible sounding horror scenario you put out there a little less likely. Do you know about whether sort of how much credence to give to this speculation? Is that something you hope is realistic at least, or does that not seem realistic? I think it does make sense. And actually the fact that, as you said, that there is this kind of convergence in mutations that we're seeing in places. So where mutations occur, as I'm sure everybody who's listening know at this point, that the places where these different variants are occurring are places with high pressure. So high pressure in terms of a lot of viral spread. That's why these variants are coming from California, UK, Brazil, and South Africa, etc. But the fact that it seems that there is this single mutation that these types of strains less susceptible to the vaccines. In a way, it's good for us to know. And then if we're able to develop a booster shot that specifically targets that, or scientists are also working on a pan-COVID vaccine, because ideally that could also help if it targets all coronaviruses or targets them in a broader way. So I think that's certainly possible. And at the same time, I still think that that scenario of having a fall resurgence is going to be possible. It may mean that we get that fall resurgence, but not then a fall resurgence in 2022, because we'll have developed a better booster shot at that time. But I still think that it's possible. And that's why we really need to put every effort into vaccinations now. Have we been sufficiently flexible in adapting the precautionary principles that make sense in an ordinary medical context to the context of a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. I mean, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about failures, but the amazing success is the existence of this vaccine, right, which is just truly unprecedented for a vaccine to be invented and tested and then produce at scale with this speed. And it should give us a lot of optimism and hope for our ability to deal with future diseases. But I still cannot get around the fact that this vaccine was essentially invented five days in, right? I mean, that within days of us having sequenced this virus, the vaccine, as we are now using it, was already existed out there in the world. And then it took nearly a year to test and deploy it. Should we have thought about human challenge trials? Should we have thought about ways in which nothing, of course, that would increase the chance that an unsafe vaccine is deployed, but things where volunteers may have said, hey, I'm willing to take this risk 
in the good of a world and the good of a nation, you know, I know that it comes with risk, but we send people in harm's way all of the time from firefighters to soldiers. And in an extraordinary situation like that, if people said, I'm willing to take this risk, should we have allowed that? And might we need to in order to deal with future pandemics that could be even more deadly with even more deadly viruses? That's such an interesting question. And I see your point as in, in the time that it took us to prove efficacy, because that's what took a long time, right? It wasn't proving safety because we were doing safety trials from the very beginning. But what took the longest time was waiting for the endpoint to be reached of a certain number of people in the placebo group versus in the vaccine group who got coronavirus to compare. But I see your point. If you did the challenge trial earlier and just exposed people instead of having them be naturally exposed in the community, but exposed individuals, could we have come up with results sooner? Or we could have just thrown parties for everybody who, you know, everybody who volunteers for this uh, vaccine trial can go, you know, to a giant club and just dance until they have COVID. I'm slightly joking, but... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about the cost-benefit analysis of that, because on the surface, of course, you're saying, ah, oh, you're exposing people to a disease that could kill you. But on the other hand... There is the question of if we had done that earlier, how many hundreds of thousands of lives might we have saved if we had this vaccine be available? I mean, I think it's certainly a question that ethicists need to wrestle with. And I think there is a related question that's, to me, more urgent because, you know, this issue of challenge trials may be some, something that we need to think about for the next pandemic, but not right now. I think the other issue that I think a lot of ethicists are, are wrestling with around the world is about requirements for vaccination. And specifically, is a vaccine passport, is that ethical? But also, given how much damage this virus has wrecked on our economy and in so many aspects of our lives, is it something that we should be requiring of workers even before it receives full approval? And I think there are obviously lots of issues around equity, but at the same time, do the ends justify the means in this case too? So what's your stand on that? Let me push you a little bit. I mean, I think my instinct is that we should only do vaccine passports if they are in fact necessary in order to pursue important goals. In the law, you often have the legal standard of something like compelling state interest. And I think there's all kinds of things that states do that they really should only be able to do. There's a very compelling reason to do it. There should be a presumption against it. But if there is, in fact, compelling state interest, then they become permissible. And it seems to me that this is one of those circumstances. Certainly, you're an emergency room doctor. Presumably, if you're working as a doctor or a nurse, it seems perfectly appropriate that that should be a requirement, right? I mean, it can't be that you are able to go into work and potentially kill some of your most vulnerable patients by giving them this disease if that is preventable. In the same way, by the way, in which uh, I had to get the MMR shot at some point in order to attend college in the United States. And, you know, I think it's perfectly reasonable for universities to say, hey, I think I had gotten that vaccine as a child in Germany, but my mom being very bad at paperwork, we couldn't find the paper. So I just got the damn shot again. But it's perfectly reasonable for universities to say, hey, hang on a second, we have a lot of kids on very cramped premises here. We don't want the spread of these diseases. So in order to attend college, you should be required to do that. Now, it may be different if we say you have to get a vaccine in order to be able to vote or in order to be able to exercise some of your fundamental rights as a citizen. That I would oppose. But if it's a question of, you know, the government helps to facilitate a document that easily proves your vaccinated status and businesses and other entities can then require, you know, your proof of being vaccinated for access to various things at a point at which everybody has a free offer to get vaccinated, it seems pretty compelling a case to me. I don't know. What do you think? I totally agree with you. And I also think that the case, especially for 
businesses and for private entities to be doing this? I mean, I would imagine that people would feel a lot more comfortable getting on a cruise ship if everybody on that cruise is also vaccinated. Maybe people will also feel more comfortable if they were looking for a new nursing home for their elderly parents, if the nursing home requires vaccinations of not only the staff, but also everybody else there, because it shows, first of all, it is a signal of sorts that it shows that they really take this seriously, but it also literally will protect you in that circumstance. And so I think that that kind of use of a passport, right, it's not saying that you have to do it, as you said, in order to vote or to access Medicaid. I mean, we, you don't want that. But having individual entities incentivize vaccinations through vaccine passports, I think, is the right way to go. I have been very surprised, though. So I would not be surprised if the right, if you will, are opposed to this on the grounds that this is government intrusion or compelling people in some way. I could see that line of people who disagree. What has really surprised me is the backlash from the left on this topic because of what they cite, which is the issue of equity. Now, I am all for making sure that we target and do not neglect the most vulnerable who have been hurt disproportionately by the pandemic. I'm strongly in favor of us making sure that we're specifically focusing on communities of color, communities that have been the hardest hit, who have low income, etc., but to hear the argument of, well, if some people cannot be vaccinated because of access, we then shouldn't incentivize vaccination? To me, that's the equity argument gone wrong. And really, we're being overly sensitive to an issue that, yes, it is really important, but by focusing on it in the wrong way, we're actually not using the best lever that we have now, which is to incentivize vaccination. I am very concerned, and I've written a series of, of Washington Post columns on this about how everything is opening up anyway. You know, we're soon about to lose the ability to incentivize people to get vaccinated because everything is going to be reopened. And I actually think the Biden administration taking a stance of saying, we're not going to do, as the federal government, we're not going to do vaccine passports. I think it's a major lost opportunity. And I also think it's ceding their authority to private entities that then may not use any kind of minimum standard for privacy, security. I think it's a really lost opportunity. And the Biden administration has done so much right, that it feels a little bit nitpicking to pick on them for this. But I think that it actually speaks to a broader problem, I think, which is that some people in the progressive movement have such a strong Puritan view about things that it actually hurts overall progress. So I have to say that one of the things that really broke me this year was the whole debate about equity and prioritization around the rollout of a vaccine. And it's not because I don't understand the huge importance of equity. And it's not because I'm not saddened by the fact that, as a matter of fact, at the moment, it looks like many non-white people have been underserved by the vaccine. But it's because of both the logic that was deployed by the CDC and the predictable impact it would have. So let me run this argument past you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. The first piece of this is that I listened to the meeting of the vaccine advisory group in which their own models showed that deviating from the plan of vaccinating by age, obviously with exceptions for medical personnel, for example, and so on, would increase the death toll by 0.5 to 6.5%. I mean, 6.5% increase is a very significant increase. We're talking about thousands or potentially tens of thousands of people. They then dismissed that as being basically on par with the alternative option. And then they said, but on practicality, it would be better to do it by age. 
But when we set on ethics, it is evidently better to do a huge range of essential workers at the same time as the elderly because of just purely the equity grounds in terms of racial distribution. Now, there's two problems I had with this. The first is that I don't think that accepting a greater death toll for a more even distribution by skin color is an appropriate consideration for government agency. But more importantly, even when you look within demographic groups, this is terrible logic because I would rather that an 80-year-old African-American man gets the vaccine than that two 23-year-old African-American Uber drivers get the vaccine because the expected death toll among the African-American community is still going to be far lower if we prioritize the elderly within that community rather than the young within that community, given the sort of very different age distribution of the disease. And then the second element of this is about practical implications. So these recommendations were non-binding and states ended up implementing them in complicated ways. They half listened and half didn't, some listened more than others. But in Maryland, for example, my understanding is that the basic upshot has been that a huge percentage of the population is in theory eligible for the vaccine. Anybody over 65, anybody with any kind of comorbidity, anybody with a BMI over 30. But who among those 70%, let's say, of a population that are eligible for the vaccine actually manages to get one of the rare shots? Well, it's of course the people who can spend all day long trolling different websites, who have high-speed internet connections, who are connected, who understand when a vaccine might become available somewhere. And so even on the grounds of the perpetrated goal of this policy, it has been an utter and predictable disaster. And I have to say, seeing that played out, is just it really broke something in me. Hmm. I mean, I appreciate the way that you described it. I disagree with a premise of what you said, but I actually don't think I, I disagree with you about the outcome, which is that we don't have an equitable or necessarily the right kind of distribution. Here's where I disagree. I actually think that we should have prioritized essential workers, not for the reason that the CDC said that somehow it's a racial issue, that somehow that balances out age. I mean, that whole thing was very strange to me too. But here's why I thought that their eventual criterion actually made sense. I think that there are two schools of thought about who you should vaccinate first. If you believe, as I think that you do, that the goal of the prioritization is to reduce the hospitalization and deaths, if that's the goal of vaccination, then I do think it makes sense to prioritize the elderly first, right? I mean, people over 65 are over 80% of deaths. And so focusing on that population first, there's very good reason for doing that. On the other hand, if you believe, as the CDC does, about making sure to focus on proportionality, but I think there's another reason. If you believe that the goal of vaccination is to keep our essential services going and that those who have been on the front lines have borne the brunt of the pandemic. And in fact, if they're still going to be going to work, if you get those individuals who have to be around others vaccinated, you're also reducing the spread of coronavirus substantially. So if you think that that's the goal, then you get the essential workers vaccinated first. If that were the goal, though, you don't just open up eligibility randomly. So this is where I agree with you. I think that what people should have done is to say, okay, meatpacking plants. Let's go to meatpacking plants. Let's go there. Let's go to jails. You know, there are settings where people are, grocery stores. Let's go to these settings 
vaccinate everyone in those settings, the way that we went to nursing homes and vaccinated people, go to work sites, set up vaccination clinics in schools and vaccinate all the teachers and school staff. I mean, that's the way that we should have done things. So I actually don't disagree with you about the way that we did the rod. I think it was bad, but I actually would have done the essential workers in the initial group too. Yeah, I think we potentially agree there. I mean, the first is that for me, a big question is about the differential impact on the spread of a disease by vaccinating essential workers versus the elderly. Now, I think what was striking about the CDC is that their own model said that in fact, going with the elderly first would reduce certainly death and severe hospitalization, perhaps incidents to some extent as well. I have no view on this, right? If an empirical model said, actually, if you vaccinate all of the essential workers first, they're the multipliers. If one grocery store employee gets COVID, on average, he gives it to 10 customers. That really is the point where it spreads. And so therefore, epidemiologically, it makes sense to go there first. I'm completely agnostic about this, right? I'm happy to defer to the model. What was striking is that the CDC's model seemed to say that actually vaccinating the elderly first makes sense. And then they dismissed that. That sort of sat uneasily with me. But then, then you're absolutely right about, well, look, if we're talking about essential workers, let's talk about actual essential workers who are the people most likely to contract and also to spread the disease. You know, I mean, I qualify as an essential worker in the state of Maryland at this point, because in theory, I teach in-person classes, even for in reality, I currently teach from online. That makes no sense, right? I should not at this point be eligible for the vaccine. We've talked a lot about negative examples. I want to touch for a moment on some positive examples. And then I have one question for you about what we should be doing in the next weeks and months. You know, we've talked about the failure in the United States. We've talked about the failure in Europe, and we could add many other countries too. What did those countries that really did stop community spread right? China, after a disastrous start, did relatively well with that. So did many other East Asian countries, including East Asian democracies like Japan and South Korea. So did some countries outside of East Asia, like Australia and New Zealand. What did they get right that we got wrong? They aimed for zero COVID. All the countries that you named, they did not see getting to a low baseline and controlling that low baseline as the goal. They all specifically said, we're going to lock down for a period of time. It's going to be a really strict lockdown. And anybody coming in to our place afterwards, we're going to test them all because the goal is zero COVID. So I don't know. Again, in retrospect, I think we're going to have to look and see, were there really only two options? Was that second option of trying to reduce the baseline and then do testing, quarantine? Maybe that wasn't an option at all. So either you do zero or you just let things go. Maybe there isn't a possible middle ground. So that brings me to the last question, which is, what's the state of play it's now? I mean, in Europe, vaccination is so low and incidence of these very transmissible strains is so high, but it appears to be the case that, you know, some amount of continued lockdown is the most realistic option. But at least in the United States and to a similar degree in Britain, we now have a lot of people vaccinated. The number of cases is no longer going down, but it's at a low level. How should we think about reopening? Are we being too conservative in reopening? In the U.S., I don't think we're being conservative because so much has reopened. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, and here in Maryland, I, I live in Baltimore here in Maryland, as you mentioned, every business is able to be open at 100 percent. And so I, I, I guess I don't know how much less conservative what that would really look like. I mean. I do think that the guidance that the CDC is providing, again, I feel a little bit bad to beat up on the CDC because they've been through a lot and there has been a huge change since the change administration. So overall, of course, they're all doing a very good job. 
But I do think that there is a disconnect between the CDC guidance and reality. As in the CDC, as of the time that we're speaking, still says don't do non-essential travel. We are at record numbers daily of travel. That's the highest since the beginning of the pandemic. You can't tell people don't do something. It's kind of like the way that we talk about STIs or preventing pregnancy or drug use. You can't say don't do it if everybody's doing it. You have to help people figure out a way to really gauge their risk, manage it, and reduce it to the best of their ability. So I don't think it's that the government policies are too conservative. I mean, I think we have really opened up, but I do think that the guidelines really need to adjust for that. I mean, I'm going to make another kind of controversial statement here. I wrote about this, and I think there have been a lot of people, including in the public health community, who have not always liked what I said about this. But I actually think that, I, I hate to say it, but people like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz are onto something. If we can definitively tell people, get vaccinated, and then you can go back to normal. In fact, go nuts as soon as you're vaccinated and two weeks after that, plan the trip that you've always wanted to go on. You know, go and dine in restaurants and dare I say it, take off your mask. If we can say that, I think we'll get a very different kind of conversation around vaccination. And I actually wonder if the end might justify the means as in, it might be that some of those people will still end up infecting people. Some of those people might still end up getting sick. But let's say that you end up then reaching herd immunity because of it. Is that worth it? I don't know. It's something that I really wrestle with. Do you think there's been a tendency among the public health community that you know much better than I do to engage in forms of amateur political communication? That's my worry about the last year. When you go back, for example, to the real hesitance of people to acknowledge that masks worked early on in the pandemic, it seems to me that it was driven uh, perhaps in part by a conservative epistemological bias, but in part by the knowledge that, you know, there's all of these hospitals desperately looking for PPE. And if we go out there and tell everybody to wear masks, they're going to buy up some of those masks and that's not where they need it. And so let's delay saying that masks work. Let's not talk too much about it. I call this amateur political commerce because I think those are not people who are qualified to think about what the impact of an utterance like that is. And they're not trained economists by and large, so they haven't thought about the ways in which actually, if we'd said two weeks earlier, everybody needs a mask, then production of masks may have ramped up more quickly and so on and so forth. It seems to me like those people, for the best of reasons, with the best of intentions, but in a really disastrous way, playing politics rather than being straight out. And I wonder whether some of the conservative guidance around things like vaccines is a little bit similar, right? They're saying, look, if we're too loud about the fact that really a vaccine protects you pretty well, you know, that really two or three weeks into having gotten a shot of Pfizer or Moderna, you're actually quite well protected. You know, if we tell people that perhaps we won't go back for a second shot, or perhaps, you know, some of these people will go around infecting people. And so let's downplay the extent to which this is the case. Yeah. Do you think there's been an element of that? I actually don't, although I agree with you. Again, I agree with you on part of it. I agree with you on the conclusion. Obviously, we should have talked about masks earlier. Obviously, I think that we should be much more forthcoming about the about the benefit of vaccines. But I disagree about the reason for why the public health community has not changed the messaging accordingly or was late on masks. But I actually think that there is the same reason for vaccinations now and masks earlier, which is that we, as scientists, I think, have a tendency to wait for perfect information. That we're not comfortable as a whole, certainly individuals are different, but as a whole, we're not comfortable with the possibility that not doing something is a decision too. 
And what I mean is when you look at masks, there was growing evidence, but it wasn't convincing evidence at that time. Back then, back last March, we didn't know as much as we do now, certainly about aerosols, right? We, we didn't know that at the time. And asymptomatic transmission was also something that we didn't know that much about either. And so I think we were waiting for more information. And it was, well, masks are not proven. Well, maybe masks only protect the wear. Well, you know, we were waiting for more and more and more and more. I see the same thing happening now with vaccines. There is plenty of evidence, real world studies from Israel, a series of studies this week from the New England Journal in California and in Texas about um, vaccinations reducing the likelihood of somebody who's fully vaccinated transmitting coronavirus by 50 times. How much more evidence do we need? I actually think that that's the problem. I don't think it's that public health people are saying, well, let me try to speculate what, what's going to happen. Let me game this out. I actually think they're saying, I don't want to be wrong. I am so scared about the possibility of maybe being wrong and correcting myself later. I don't even want to say anything at all. But I actually think that that reluctance is harmful more than anything, especially now on the things. That's fascinating. So what they should have said is, look, we don't yet know 100% masks are going to work, but the evidence points that way. So if you can wear a mask, wear a mask, we'll update you with new information as it comes in. But instead they said, there's no scientific proof that masks work right? Which is a very, very different kind of message. Which I was guilty for too. I mean, I will say that in retrospect, I should have done what you just did. And in fact, we as the scientific community should have come out and said, we need your help. We don't have masks for our healthcare workers. We need that to be the priority. But if you happen to have a mask lying around at home, or if you have a cloth mask, please wear that mask. We don't know for sure, but it probably helps you. That's what we should have said. We didn't. That was a major mistake. But let's not make that same mistake again when it comes to vaccines. Well, listen, one of the things that's happened to me about this conversation is that it is possible, I think, to interrogate critically the ways in which our institutions have performed over the last years, the ways in which also public health professionals and, and experts have gotten some things wrong, but you know, without in any way wavering from the commitment to science, to public health, and to hopefully our ability to eradicate this pandemic. So, Nina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course, Yasha, nice to talk to you. Thank you for the conversation. And I love the way that you think. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.